0: Hello, we are live with SCI TV. I am Joshua Gordon and we are here with Dr. Ken Pendleton and Dave Gallis. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Hi, Josh. Thanks, Josh.
0: So, we have a fun topic today. We are going to talk about the Super League, which may not be a long-standing event because it collapsed before we could barely even figure out what it was, but that's what your jobs are to try and help us understand Um, some of what just happened, some of the history and where we go from here. Now for those in the audience who are wondering what gives you all credibility, I'm hoping you could do a bit of an introduction. Ken, let's start with you. Who are you in this space of soccer? What do you know?
1: Uh, Well, uh, mostly I'm just a, a lifelong fan who decided to misspend his academic education trying to look at sports systematically. And so I grew up watching American sports and It'd mainly, be, and, and, when I could, and to the extent I could get access to international soccer, um, I just dove into it completely. So I think if I had an area of expertise that's relevant here, it's that I'm probably about as good as translating between the two institutions as anyone, you know, as about as much as, much as anyone with the, with the possible exception of the other guests you have.
0: And, and am I right that you used to host parties at three in the morning in the deep underground of your apartment? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I don't know if it's underground. That's a bit harsh. Um, yeah, it was the 2002 World Cup. It was in Japan and Korea. So the games were on at 11, on Pacific time, 11.32 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. And uh, a, a good time had, was had by all, especially the first few weeks. And then, and then our age started to creep in. And by the end, we were more likely to VCR the games and watch them in the morning.
0: And, and I believe you've also been the author of one of the few children's books written hmm. uh, about this topic as well.
1: So Yes, that's true. I, 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 I wrote a book on David Beckham and uh, and it was a summer job. I needed the money and uh, I got 5,000 bucks for that and no residuals. I think I did not get a very good deal.
0: That was before I taught you things about negotiation. So we'll, we'll do better next time. Touche. And Dave, how about you? What gives you some of the cred in this space, which I know you have tons of?
2: Um, early childhood, lived in, uh, in Europe, saw... arrived in Europe in 1977 right after uh, Liverpool had won the European Cup and uh, all eyes were on the 1978 World Cup. Um, That summer, um, for some reason, Liverpool sold their star striker Kevin Keegan and then splashed the cash out on uh, a striker from Celtic by the name of Kenny Dalglish and I was a fan from then on. So I grew up with the game, played every day of my childhood. Um, And then now I started a club here in Eugene, USL2 Club, uh, Lane United FC. So fourth tier of American soccer. Um, And we have big plans for the local community and multi-use development. It's sports anchored and hope to move up to the pro ranks in the not too distant future. So... Yeah, living within the, uh, the grassroots, bite and grind, everyday soccer community in, the, in this country.
0: Great. Well, I think your perspectives are going to be invaluable as we pick this apart a bit. I've had the pleasure in recent years of spending some time with some of the Premier League clubs and working with them behind the scenes and hearing on the state side from folks like Fenway Sports Group who obviously have ownership interests uh, out there in Liverpool as well. So I, I I, will try to keep up with the heavy hitters here in the room as best I can. But mostly I'm going to be asking you some questions along the way and trying to understand what happened. So let's start there. We just saw a, a quick and catastrophic collapse. What is going on? What happened? How did this happen? Um, Ken, do you want to kick us off and sure. fill in here a bit? So let's
1: cut to the nub of what they tried to do and then show why it was doomed to be stillborn, if you will. So what you had were the, the, the most elite clubs from the most elite leagues who already had benefited greatly financially from the way soccer had evolved for the last 30 years decide that too much is never enough. And those they decided they could consolidate their power even further. And what they seem to have completely ignored is that there are a lot of other institutional stakeholders that, such as the governing bodies of European soccer, international soccer, the football associations in all the different countries, as well as as fans of of clubs big and small, who basically were not going to put up with this. The institutional interests because they, they they realized quite correctly that this would basically be, if not the death of their leagues, it would be, they would essentially be reduced to what in America we would think of as permanent minor league sports status. And the, the fans, because fans actually recognize, we have, we, have, we have solidarity in the sense, at least soccer fans do, that we really think you should, it should be a merit-based sport, that you should be promoted if you're terrible. The Los Angeles Clippers should have been promoted, they should have been demoted when Donald Sterling was the owner. We have a deep sense of justice in that sense that if, if you can't use the resources you have to be successful on the field, you have no right to parlay them into success by using your resources to win, win politically off the field.
0: And, and we saw to your point, Ken, uh, you know, John Henry, obviously one of the ownership interests posted an apology video just hours after the collapse and where he said the project put forward was never going to stand without the support of the fans. No one ever thought differently in England. Over these 48 hours, you were very clear that it would not stand. We heard you. I heard you. How, how did that happen after the fact, not before the fact? Dave, Dave, you you get involved on the grassroots side. How did how did they not hear those voices before it went public?
2: Well, I, I think the... I think the, um, involved parties really misread things badly on two fronts. I mean, obviously they misread how things would be accepted by the fans. Um, one telling part of that apology was that John Henry kept referring to it, to Liverpool as your club, not our club. He, he, as if he wasn't part of the, uh, interested party, um, So there was a bad misread in terms of how the fans would accept it. I think part of that might stem from coming from a closed um, American sports culture where the cartel of the NFL, the cartel of the NBA are just accepted um, and they thrive. Um, But that's just not the way things operate in Europe. And even American soccer fans don't want it to operate that way in Europe. So there was a bad misread there. I think the other misread was um, on the governing bodies. I think FIFA and UEFA have displayed an affinity for expanding competitions, expanding revenues, those TV dollars that keep coming in. I mean, FIFA is pushing for a super league in Africa. I think they thought that the governing bodies would be more accepting of this. Um, I also think we can't understate how important it was that this actually leaked before they were really prepared to launch. I think their goal was probably to announce this in June and and tie some of these loose ends up in the background. But no way to know now.
0: Yeah, there does seem to be some reporting that there was a coffee that sounded the alarm for one of the individuals, and then the wheels got set in motion of trying to undo this really quickly. So this this clumsy launch seems to not have been quite as purposeful as uh you would well as you would hope, right, for these kinds of things. So can you can you both shed a little bit of history? Obviously, the present day shows a, a uh, this huge neglect of some of the key stakeholders, as you've both identified. What is some of the deeper history that got us here? Because if we're going to look where the future is going to head, we probably need to understand it with some intricacy of the history behind this. So,
1: yeah. So let me build on the John Henry's quote in the, you know, the, 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 this is, this is your team. There's a famous 30 for 30 documentary that first season about the Baltimore Colts moving to Indianapolis. And perhaps the pivotal scene in that documentary is the, owner of the, the Baltimore Colts, Robert Ursay, having clearly had a highball or or too many getting off an airplane. And he was asked, you know, what, are you going to move our team? And he just in his, slurring his words is like our team. This isn't our team. This is my team. This is my family's team. Right. And so that in American sports since 1876, when baseball, the baseball, clubs broke away from any accountability to the baseball players or the fans. Americans have taken it for granted that sports were businesses. And that doesn't mean we always liked it. I think I I don't know anybody who thought it was a good thing when the Cleveland Browns up and relocated ironically to Baltimore in 1996. But I also don't know a single person who, who was willing to outside of Cleveland who was willing to boycott NFL games. And and so I think there's so many things about American sports that that business model we take for granted that, that they would never take it, uh, you know, take for granted abroad. One is re- relocating franchises, which to my knowledge has only occurred once in the last century in Great Britain. Also, commercials. If they tried to enter, you know, there was a proposal several years ago in Germany to have to change soccer into four 25 minute quarters instead of two 45 minute halves. And they, they, the rebellion would be instantaneous if that occurred. So American fans are, have accepted the idea that we're consumers and, and that they're selling us a, fa- a false identity that we embrace nonetheless. Whereas in Europe, I don't think they see it that way. And I don't think for all the, uh, the irony of, you know, John Henry owns the, mo- the most loyal, the, fan, the baseball team with the most loyal fans in America, the Red Sox, with all due respect to everybody else, and I'm not a Red Sox fan. He also, owned, he also then had an ownership stake in, the, in, the, in this team in Europe that has probably had the, as good a fan loyalty as any, if not the best. And yet I still think he was like beholden implicitly to this American model of this isn't your team. This is our team. Now, he wasn't going to drink highballs and slur his words. In fact, he doesn't do many interviews these days. But the idea actually was nonetheless, I think, in, you know, part of the, his thought process when he did this. Maybe he'll do an interview and he could tell us whether it was or not.
0: And to your point, one of the longtime Liverpool fans and a coach from Boston College was quoted this week as saying, in their blind greed and arrogance, these owners have lost sight of the real power in the world of football. The real power lies with the supporters and fans of the clubs, the people. These current owners are only caretakers of great histories and traditions, And not too many Americans appreciate that perspective, right? That's a, that is a unique perspective that if you don't recognize it could lead you exactly where we just saw them head into Dave, what about, about you thoughts in terms of some of the additional history that helped bring us to this moment?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because you look at American sports um, and how they've developed and how they exist um, and for the most part, they're American sports. They don't exist outside our, our borders. Um, you know, th- we're, we're not getting, we have some, we have a number of, uh, good European players in the NBA now, but that's a more recent development. We certainly don't have any, uh, any football players coming from <laughs> anywhere else, um, They also have the advantage of a free farm system in the, in the college ranks. I mean, that's a massive system that they don't have to pay for. And so the cartel that, that exists at those levels really just empowers them to do um, whatever they want. There is no grassroots history, really where every club or every town has a club um, that the way it exists around the world with soccer. That being said, Um, The recent, more recent developments at FIFA and um, with agencies, especially with these really high power agents, they look at the NFL and the Super Bowl and the dollars compared to the dollars that even the World Cup gets. And they start thinking about how they can start to apply some of those things to the world's game and that's where i i think we see a lot of the sort of influences coming and in how they can fit it into this model and you know certainly the super league proposal was a step too far but we're seeing more and more of these i mean we, we see some of the um endeavors that that uh, we see in american sports trying to be fit into soccer but more than that we see the players the big the big billionaire owners i mean the oil money that's that's coming into the premier league especially but european soccer in general is one of the things that is definitely of concern if we want to keep the the model we know and love in soccer and and that's i don't know how we put
0: that genie back in the bottle honestly yeah. it's really interesting you say that I, you know one of the things I do in my role at the university is I, I take students on these industry trips and we we get to engage through that lens as well with some of these clubs and so we'll, we'll go to matches and then we'll talk to executives and my students are shocked by how many uh, opportunities to monetize are not taken advantage of so they, they they look at the affordability of the food and they see naivety in it they don't see that it's welcoming. They see the ticket prices and how affordable they are and and are astonished that they're not maximizing and it's not this robust secondary ticket market. And they look at the merchandise and see it as too affordable. And it's such an American lens that it's very um, unsettling for them to see that there's something bigger going on, even though obviously the revenue is 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 there too, right? In this model, but it's not the only driver behind it. And that's that is a really, really big cultural divide that we see between these two approaches. Now, obviously the American model has, has worked in terms of building the commercialization of it, but at what cost. So you know, from your perspective, what are some of the costs if, if you go so heavy on the commercialization side, what is lost in doing that?
1: Right. Well, I, I think you know the, the biggest thing about the biggest thing that's lost, is if you actually compromise the integrity of the, of the event itself. like, it, And I think, again, commercials are so key to this. And, and so if, if you went to a music concert and after three songs, you know, the, the band stopped and said, we'll be right back after this commercial, people, you know, people would be incredibly upset. And yet we've taken that for granted And a, a normal NFL game has and I'm being, you know, 50 minutes of commercials in a three hour game. So roughly seven, you know, so, you know, that's, that's huge percent. Like, you know, 30% of the game is actually commercials, not to mention throwing in halftime. Right. And we, and we just take that for granted. So they've compromised the integrity of the game. And what I'll say that's great about soccer is there it's I, the idea of having those two 45 minute halves and not interrupting them unless, unless except for extremely hot weather. Is just taken as an absolute given of the sport. The other thing about the product of what Dave was saying earlier, that they've done, you know, they, they you know, that, that, that's really good, is that everybody has a club. Every city has a club in Europe. Every town has a club. It's just a matter of what level they play at and they achieve. They, the resources might not be the same, but at the end of the day, it's based on merit. Right. in, in our country, you know, in our country, you're either major league or you're minor league. And since the St. Louis Cardinals set up farm systems in baseball in the 30s, even the minor league teams are owned, are just under the auspices of major league teams. So they, and I so I really want to say they've done things, they've really done soccer has really kept that integrity of two key parts of the experience, the product itself and the fact that every club is it, it has a you know, every municipality, et cetera, has a team. Really well. What they've done really poorly, and I think this is probably the single most under-discussed issue in all of soccer, is soccer is the only sport I know of where the best people, a huge percentage of them, don't even get to play every week, even though they're healthy, because the biggest clubs, because of the the extraordinary commitments they have, which I'm sure Dave would be happy to speak to, that's more those basically the big clubs like a Manchester City have two they probably have two teams that could finish in the top half of the premier league if they played and that's just not good for soccer imagine if the you know the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had Pat Mahomes and his backup was Tom Brady how would that be good for the NFL as a product when all of a sudden you don't have the best 32 quarterbacks playing every week but say you have the best 20 and 12 other teams are having to do with backups because the other 12 others are actually starter or backups on the teams that have the real resources Right. And and that's in and and that is part a huge part of this problem is that we've evolved soccer has evolved in such a way that it's essentially allowed these clubs to consolidate the product in such a way that they essentially, even though they don't formally have haves and have nots like we do with minor league system, the idea of a Manchester United being relegated is well near impossible because they have so many, they have so many resources. So in 1974, Manchester United, believe it or not, were relegated for a whole season. They had to play down in Division II. Wouldn't it be cool if the New York Yankees as bad as they were in the late 60s and early 70s? I know you would agree with this, Josh, (laughs) if they would have had to spend a year in AAA. How good would that be for sport? And imagine them going around and playing in Pawtucket and Rochester for a year. It would have been fantastic. It would have reconnected baseball to its roots, right? But that's inconceivable in our model. But, but, you know, what we've done is basically created, you know, with, with soccer, unfortunately, soccer got a lot of it right, but they didn't, they haven't taken the steps, they, they could have learned the best lesson from American sports, which is, how do you control financial costs and create competitive balance among the different teams at different levels,
0: and that they haven't learned at all. I mean, we know with COVID-19, a number of clubs were in financial distress, right, with not having you know, their sources of revenue, not having a, a lot of the ways that they, they could stay afloat. And it seems like that may have been a, a bit of a pressure point being felt from the smaller club side. And then this becomes a compounding interest as well. The, I, I think about, Ken, with your, your story a bit about FC Wimbledon and their journey from, what were they, the ninth or 10th tier to, to make it back up uh, pretty far up in the, in the system all from, you know, Ivor Heller getting divorced and triple mortgaging his house and living with the weekend warriors before he could come up. That could never happen in the American model. And that story is so compelling.
1: Right, and, and uh, is, 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 uh, I hate to mention it, but they beat Liverpool in the 1988 FA Cup final. No, I mean, it's a, it's a great story. It's,
2: it's, it's unheard of. I mean, and they're in every league in, in Europe. I mean, um, looks like, Bournemouth is going to be competing in the promotion playoff to get back in the Premier League after only being gone for one season. And I'm not exactly sure how many years ago, eight years ago or so, they were one penalty away from falling out of um, league football entirely. They're going to go down to conference, just unheard of. Right. And they're, they're able to make it back up to the, uh, to the Premier League and actually survive a number of years until an injury riddled season last season with a stadium, but only holds just over 10,000, 10, fans. Right. Similarly, similarly, um, a bar in uh, Spain, they, they consistently stay in La Liga with a stadium of 6,500 seats. Yeah. It's amazing, but those stories just can't exist here. But, um, back to your original question, Josh, and Ken, you, you left a lot to unpack in that last, uh, that last segment there uh but i think one of the important things to to underline is that you know capitalism forces us to continue to grow and continued growth is just unsustainable at some level and with a lot of these super clubs what they end up doing is they end up looking for where they can grow and their own markets are saturated um so they're looking to Asia, huge growth market in terms of dollars. You see um, El Clasico you know, between Real Madrid and Barcelona being scheduled at 11 a.m. local time to fit with the Asian TV market. Um, so what, what you're seeing more and more with these super clubs is they're sacrificing their own local fan base experience to maximize their revenue in other areas. Um, If there's a silver lining to the whole COVID experience, I think in in our realm, at least, I think it's that everyone now realizes that um, in-person event attendance is not dead. People really, really want that. And even TV audiences thrive on that. Watching games that are being played in empty stadiums is not the same. And so there's a loss of TV viewership just because the atmosphere isn't there and that atmosphere is key. So I hope that we'll sort of double down on maximizing the fan experience and keeping those tickets affordable and making sure we have a nice, diverse crowd through all these stadiums and can focus on that piece and what created uh, the love of the game worldwide to begin with.
0: Uh, certainly some of the analysis on this has sounded like there's been a pushback to the American model itself and a bit of anti-American sentiment here. And it's hard not to imagine that that might, that the vibe might, might not become even more exaggerated. When I talked to some of the state side um, and where they wanna take the sport, they wanna take a lot of live event to a more exclusive place, uh, higher ticket prices, to have it be almost a bucket list experience that you do once or twice in your lifetime. And then to push most of the viewership to some sort of augmented or virtual reality or TV audience. And that seems like it runs quite counter to what you were just saying, Dave, about actually where the heart of sport really thrives, which is in this live accessible experience. And so I guess when we look to the future, where I'd like to to ask both of you for some insight is how do we blend and find the sweet spot between what we know works so well in this historically successful model of engagement. And of course, looking at some of the pressures of where things are going ahead with ownership and, you know, the the idea of the super league is probably not going away. Right. And it it may come back in many different forms again, and it has percolated before.
2: Yeah. I think if you're looking for a a hybrid solution, um, there's, which I think has to be the solution if you want to create that really um sort of elite experience the, the bucket list the one off um or th- almost like the the staple center you have your your top your upper tier and your lower bowl and they're you know the haves and the have nots in soccer the there's the working man's experience of going to the games going to the pubs first singing your songs the bucket listers don't know the songs the bucket listers can't create the atmosphere and the atmosphere that the season ticket holders the true fans etc create is part of the experience that the bucket listers want to to see and so i think we have to think of those the local fans as part of that experience so you may have your you know your vip suites (laughs) looking down on the the everyday, the every week fans who are showing up and creating the atmosphere. But I don't think you can take that that local um, support
1: and atmosphere out of the game. Great. Ken, what about you? Your yeah, thoughts? I, I want to completely agree with Dave that the most authentic, if you want to sell the authentic experience, it has to have a, it, it needs to be permeated with authenticity. That the, if you, Go to a game, if you have a bunch of people who go to the game and they're going as, a, as that bucket list experience, they're simply not going to be immersed in the subtleties of the culture. They're not going to have the sense of narrative about what the, t- what the team's strengths and weaknesses are, what, they're, what, what, they, what you know why they're in contention now if they weren't a year ago, et cetera. And, and so I think it's a misunderstanding. I would rather, to this day, if I go to a Florida State football game, if I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to sit in a luxury suite. If I could do it, I'd want to be among the students at the game. Yeah, you know, God forbid the day I get too old to do that because it's just way more fun to do that. It's a, That is the authentic experience, having prawn sandwiches. And you know, as much as I'd like that easy access to beer, which I, you're not going to get in the student section, I'm willing to sacrifice that. Um, and so on a practical level, I think that the nation that's come the closest to embodying the right uh, way of balancing it is Germany. The fans still technically have a 50 plus one stake in the club, which is why Bayern and Dortmund had didn't you know did not come out in support of this even though I think they would have liked to they the fans also have effectively prevented their the most important highlight show in germany from being aired on on uh, satellite tv they kept it on on the major tv networks because they just boycotted it they've kept ticket prices at a relatively good level and they've reintroduced terracing which is you know in, in the context of the 80s especially in great britain and england it's totally understandable that they wanted to get rid of terracing. It was you know, tragic things occurred and on at least three different occasions and there were larger constant problems around it. But if it's done right, that is the authentic experience. It's sitting, being part of the yellow wall at a Dortmund match is, what, you know, is why you would wanna go there. You wouldn't wanna go there. Why would you wanna go sit in a luxury suite and watch the yellow wall when you could be part of the yellow wall? That's what I've never understood about this sort of gentrification Of sports. I mean, if you're just doing it, even if it just seems to me a very hollow experience.
2: I just want to add one thing to that in, because we're really talking about sort of powers that be trying to figure out and trying to sell what they think is the best experience and can make the most money. And, you know, the super league and some of these other competitions that are set up, basically end up pitting the same teams against each other over and over, which means that each one of those games is less significant. <clears throat> um, the MLS, I think, trad- made a tragic mistake when it moved to an unbalanced schedule. And now the Timbers play the Sounders more than just twice a year, which means those games just aren't as important anymore. And part of the, the authentic fan experience is playing every other team and the crowd responds differently to those different games. And that's part of the overall experience. I mean, a Merseyside Derby against Liverpool, or between Liverpool and Everton is very different than when Liverpool plays Derby in an FA Cup. There's a social dynamic that's very different that is part of the experience that um, isn't on display when you just have Real Madrid
0: playing uh,
2: Man City every week.
0: A great, great point. The the desire for pass revenue, that gluttony actually devalues some of the experience if you're not careful. I mean, even in major league baseball, Don't. the fact that American League plays National League all the time takes a little of the luster out of the World Series where you these dream matchups you only could see if they both reach the pinnacle. Those happen only once in a while. Now they happen all the time. You get to see them play each other. So uh, Two two more questions for you as we start to wrap. First question is, how do the owners who who became part of this rebellion, so to speak, how do they recover? I, I there's um, a Sky Sports commentator Jamie Carragher, who grew up in Liverpool, said, I actually think the the situation with Liverpool's owners that I don't see how they can continue. I don't see a future for the ownership of FSG at Liverpool on the back of this. They will never this will never be forgotten. I think the best thing for them would be to find a new buyer. Are, are, are the clubs in that much damage having tried and dipped their toe in this water and can they recover? And then of course, I'd love for you both to put your crystal ball um, into effect and, and what, what is going to happen next? What do you think?
1: Do the, do the owners recover? <clears throat> I, I do think time, you know, it, 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 it is, it can do a lot of work here. Um, but I, I, it, I feel like I'm in a brave new world. In American context, it would be nothing. And and maybe and, and John Henry has done a, a, a you know it's, Dave can go into chapter and verse about has it. done an unbelievable amount for Liverpool of turning it back into you know is 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 you know the most one of the best two or three clubs in Great Britain on a competitive level or in England on a competitive level. So maybe time will heal this as long as there's no hint he'll ever do it again. Um, but i just don't know the answer to that i don't have any i, don't, I can't think of a relevant precedent and i, I you know for how sensitive fans are going to be i guess the really interesting question here to this, which ties into the second one is when they when the big super clubs come back and they start trying to press for for incremental consolidation of power for example by expanding the champions league or keeping more of the revenue or things like that are fans and the other stakeholders now feeling sufficiently emboldened that they will actually try to feel, feel, you know, feel like they can actually prevent them from even doing that. And and I and I think that's what, this could be a game-changing precedent from the point of view of political activism among fans and among the among the other institutional holders. And so my, the optimistic part of me. Once, hopes that what this really would mean is that European soccer would not be dominated by the four or most five major leagues. And as, you know one of the things you know, that's most remarkable about this, if you were going to try to fun, have a super league, you, you, why would you ignore nine of the 15 biggest cities in Europe from the point of view of TV markets, also from the point of view of consolidating political power? You might've actually had a shot at this if you had say brought you know, leading Turkish clubs, leading Russian clubs, you know, leading clubs from Portugal who feel like they should still be able to compete at the highest level, you might have actually been able to put together a winning coalition here. But but because this group was just, like I said earlier at the beginning, the elite teams from the elite leagues not being satisfied with all the incremental power they've consolidated gradually over 30 years decided to go for the big land grab and take all the power. And and it was, I, I just can't even comprehend that they didn't even... If they were the NFL, they would at least been smart enough to to engage all the relevant, you know, enough stakeholders to have a chance at a winning coalition here. But there seems to be absolutely no evidence of that. So I could see them trying, you know, stepping back and rethinking how they do this in the future. Final thing, I do not think they will ever be able to leverage the game and saying, hey, if you don't give us what we want, what we want, Real Madrid's going to stop playing soccer or Liverpool's going to stop playing soccer or Juventus is. They I think the way they, they, one lesson they got out of this is we're, we will, we'll dispose of them before they, they, they're allowed to consolidate power so completely.
0: And Dave, final thoughts from you as we wrap this really interesting <coughs> conversation where I've learned a ton from you both and <coughs> I know that our audience uh, has as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly to your original point, as a Liverpool fan, I was, I was really disappointed. Um, that being said, I'm not quite willing to give up on FSG yet. I think they've shown in Boston and in Liverpool um, that that they do value history, um, certainly with their commitment to, to squeeze as many seats out of uh, Fenway as possible without tearing anything down while keeping its – it's Aura. They did the same thing at Anfield. You know, when, when they bought Liverpool, Anfield was slated for demolition and a new stadium was going to be built next door in Stanley Park. And the first thing they did was nix that plan. Um, they've also shown that they're leaders in analytics and they bring a competitive edge to that moneyball approach to sport. And it worked in Liverpool. They have the leading analytics team. In England, and it brought them their first championship in 30 years. They hired a head coach who is as beloved as any they've ever had that connects with the fans. So I think they've taken themselves to the brink in terms of what people will tolerate, but I'm not willing to give up on them just yet. But they I, I really hope they've learned from this one. Um One of the things that occurred to me when this whole thing broke was that this may have been sort of a backlash against um, the fact that um, project big picture was not adopted back in, you know, six months ago or whatever it was they wanted to make some reforms and consolidate the premier league games to the weekends and get rid of the league cup and do some of these other things. And, and there were some good ideas in there. Certainly it was, a similar power grab, but just at, on, on the English scale, not on the European scale. And so the, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater on that, unfortunately, because I think there were some, some good components to that proposal that would have helped lower league soccer and would have cleared up the schedule a little bit more. Um, and as we see this week with the, the new Champions League proposal, schedule congestion is becoming more and more of an issue and that really needs to be addressed
0: yeah much of what you've both shared really highlights for me just how important it is to identify your stakeholders correctly um, to engage them actively to recognize that power itself is often fleeting and to not rely so heavily on that and then of course that recognizing that change is is part of our games but to to do it responsibly there was a, a great ad in the aftermath of this from Heineken where they said, you know, when drinking, do so responsibly. And it was an allusion to this uh, in the Super League and what happens if you if you get out in front of your sober self, so to speak.
2: N- never drink and start a league, I think it was.
0: Yeah, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for the conversation uh, and really appreciate it. And we'll have to do this again.
2: Thank Love you, Josh. Josh. Thanks, Josh.